Hey everyone, this is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and this is our weekly podcast. Hope it encourages you. Hope it makes you want to be closer to Jesus and more like him. Hope you enjoy this sermon. And if you want to know more about us, find us online at woodburnbaptist.org. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, starting a new message series today entitled Easter People. We're looking at saints and sinners on the road to Calvary. Uh, I, I want us to celebrate Easter in a big way this year, but I'm pretty convinced that the only way to celebrate Easter properly is to make the walk to the cross with Jesus, and that's what I want us to do, and to talk about some of those in Scripture that we meet along the way to the cross. So that's where we are. Mark chapter 14 uh, for, uh, for today. Um, I, I, I really love Jesus. I, I just love Jesus. In some ways, it's a strange thing to say, even though I'm a pastor and I'm your pastor and I assume that you all love Jesus too, I do. But still, when I say it, it still seems um, childish. It seems like something that a manly man might not say. You know, I just love Jesus. I really love Jesus. In my life, uh, I'm kind of a professional Christian, you know? I read the Bible in front of people for a living. I, I pray, and so uh, the temptation for me is always to let my relationship with Christ be only public. But I have to nurture, and I have to have a, a soft heart for the Lord. I have to have a relationship with Jesus that has nothing to do with, with being on this platform being in front of people. I, I preach and, I, and I, I love preaching, but at the same time, preaching can only be genuine if it's coming from a life in the word, which means I have to love the word, and I do. A couple of weeks ago, um, I just got away to be with God. Um, it may sound strange to you. I don't think it sounds strange to all of you, but I just... Uh, it's a personal relationship, you all, and you have to uh, intentionally invest in that. You, like any other relationship, you have to be together. And I love being with the Lord, and I have so few opportunities when I can just be in silence and in his presence, and that's what I did. And it was sweet. It was really good. So I'd been in, uh, just in the presence of the Lord for a couple of days. I'd been praying um, and I really love the Lord. I love his presence. And I was just on top of the world with God. Uh, I was outside of Bardstown at this particular moment. I was on a public trail and I was outside. I was praying and walking and enjoying everything. Uh, and I just got just sort of captured in the Lord's presence. And it was just amazing and good. And it seemed like nobody else in the world was around. You know, it's made it even better. And so I, I reached this point on the path, uh, kind of on top of a hill, and I just uh, was just undone in the presence of the Lord. And I just stopped, and I stood there, and I just began to speak to him and worship him. And in my heart, I just thought, I, I want this moment to last forever. And I told the Lord that I would stand here with you forever. And then about the time I said that, I heard a noise and opened one eye and looked and there's somebody coming on the path. And I realized 
how foolish I looked. Standing in the middle of the path, looking at the sky, eyes closed, hands up. Um, and I had just said the words to the Lord, I could stand, I would stand here like this with you forever. But as soon as there was somebody who could see me and I thought for a moment, they're probably going to think I'm foolish. It's amazing how quickly I turned that off. I dropped my hands. I tried to look normal. I walked along the path, you know, um, I told the Lord I would stand like that forever. And as soon as somebody looked at me and I thought that they might have thoughts about it, I uh, walked away. Mark chapter 14 is an amazing passage about a person who does something impractical. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense from a worldly perspective, but she does it just out of love for the Lord. She just loves Jesus. And the amazing thing about this story, and the reason why I want to start this series with this story is because Jesus himself at the end, and we'll get there, I'm going to read it, but Jesus himself says at the end of this moment with this woman, uh, in the future, whenever the gospel is preached, and understand Jesus is saying these words before the gospel's ever been preached anywhere. But Jesus says in the future, when you're preaching the gospel in all the nations, when you're telling people about me, make sure you tell people about her. And when you tell people about what I have done, make sure you tell people what she did. When you tell people to remember me, you make sure they also remember her. Obviously, in Jesus' mind, this is an important moment and an important woman. And the irony of that is... We may never know her name. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The leading priest and the teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, for the people may riot. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, it's essential oils, y'all. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. And Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She's done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth. Wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Have you ever uh, just done something crazy just out of love? I mean, have you? 
just been so in love or so overwhelmed with emotion, a deep affection for somebody? Have you ever just, just sort of lost your mind and did something just out of character, something extravagant, something extraordinary? Have you ever just loved somebody that much? Looking at your faces, I'm thinking, no, for, for a lot of you. Have you, uh, you know, in premarital counseling, which I love with couples, um, we're always planning the wedding, and I don't mean to be you know, stereotypical here, but it's often the, the woman who's all about the wedding ceremony because she's been planning this ceremony since she was playing with Barbie dolls you know, and looking at bridal magazines as a teenager. I mean, often young women have put a lot of thought into the ceremony, their wedding. That's, that's her big day. Guys, not so much. I don't know a single guy, maybe you're the guy, and if so, you go, dude, but I've never really known a guy who, you know, was also dreaming about his wedding and playing with Barbies, you know, and looking at bridal magazines. That's just not a dude thing. So, in premarital counseling, one of my favorite things to do is for the sake of the guy to say, hey, man, tell me about the proposal, because that's his moment. Now, there are no magazines for guys to get ideas from. We got to just pull it out of us, you know. I mean, we have to figure this out. But often the guy puts a whole lot into the proposal, you know. That, that's his moment. And today, y'all, it's getting crazy. Y'all paying attention to guys now? I mean, guys like me, we couldn't cut it today because you got to have, like, if you're going to get engaged, you got to have a drone photographing it from outer space now. I mean, y'all know I'm not making it up. Like you got to have a gospel choir and the blue angels flying over with fireworks. And you know, you got photographers hiding in the bushes. Am I, am I, am I right? I mean, this guy probably ironed his shirt. He probably put on something Carhartt doesn't even make, you know, for this moment. This moment, because he's so in love, he wants to show the girl that he loves how much he loves her. He wants to do something she will remember. You ever just love somebody so much? Just a heart so full of gratitude that, that, that the words thank you wouldn't even, I mean, y'all, there are things words can't say. So how do you say what words can't say. According to this story, there was a, a banquet, a big meal at the home of a man in Bethany named Simon. Um, it's a holiday meal, so understand that. This is a big banquet in a little village, tiny village, big banquet, which means this is important and probably everybody is there, more than likely. It's a big deal. It's a holiday meal. It's Passover, the scripture says, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it's a big meal in, in that way. I mean, y'all know that. Thanksgiving, Christmas, you know what a holiday meal looks like. And so this is an extravagant meal. It's a banquet with traditional foods and uh, as lavish and wonderful as they can be presented. I mean, it's a holiday. It's Thanksgiving, you know, although in the scripture it's Passover. I'm just trying to get you to make that connection. And, and in the same way that we do when we gather to feast like at Thanksgiving or Christmas, our hearts instantly go to those who can't afford to feast. And so often those are opportunities to help the poor. 
And so Thanksgiving, even here at church, if we do a Thanksgiving big meal, we'll often combine that with a food drive, you know, so that we can, at the very same time that we are celebrating and feasting, we can remember those who can't feast. We remember the poor. That's why at Christmas you walk in the Walmart, Target, wherever you go, and there's a big red Salvation Army kettle, a volunteer ringing a bell, and everybody tries to put a little something in the Salvation Army kettle, you know. It's just, it's, it's, it's a good time to remember the poor. So it's a holiday meal like that, and, and, and I love that. Now, it tells us right at the beginning that the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, they're still looking for an opportunity to kill Jesus. They haven't put their plans on hold at all. It's just that they're not going to do it in the middle of the holiday. So meanwhile, Jesus was one of those at the banquet, at the big dinner, at the home of Simon, who, interestingly, used to be a leper. Now, when I read that, did, did, did you stop and think about that? Because y'all know how leprosy works, right? Leprosy is not something that you get tired of and then you just, you know, like, you know, go find yourself something, you know, I'm, I'm done with that deal. Leprosy is something that you catch tragically and then you have it the rest of your life. It's, it's not the sort of thing that you, you know, sneeze three times, you know, take an aspirin. No, no, no. So it's striking that this is a, an ex-leper, a, a former leper. Now, we don't know anything about his story. I mean, this is it. Only thing we know about Simon, the, you know, formerly known as the leper. I mean, the only way we know him at all is in this story and in this banquet. But can you not, I mean, is there any way not to write that story in your head? I don't know. We can't say, and it's not in the Bible, but you tell me if you know another way to get over leprosy than, than if Jesus heals you. My hunch is this has got to be a man that Jesus healed. Used to be a leper. I mean, how are you going to explain that? That's what I would say. Probably healed by Jesus. And so uh, the, the dinner's part of that gratitude, you know? I'm sure he loves Jesus. There are uh, men at the table, of course. That would have been typical, traditional. All the men are there. The disciples of Jesus are there. Jesus is there. I'm amazed at the way that Jesus can know that he's about to die. I mean, like, look, we're right there. He's about to face the cross. And yet, um, he can just eat dinner. <laughs> And, and have conversations with people. I don't, I don't understand that kind of composure, that, that uh, peaceful determination, and at the same time to be available for people. I, I don't know how Jesus does that, but he does. He's there at the table of the disciples. There's conversation. I'd love to hear the conversation. But in the middle of that, a woman comes in, and, and we're not going to know her name. Some people say, well, it's probably Mary. Her name was probably Mary. Her, Name may not have been married. We don't know. We're not going to know. She just walks in, and she doesn't ask anybody for permission, although chances are they would not have allowed her in. That's not a woman's place. She walks in. We don't know her name, and she doesn't say a word. She doesn't have a line to speak in this story. She just comes in with... Um, an alabaster container, a jar of alabaster uh, that was perfume, uh, ointment. It's, it's alabaster, which tells us it's, it's important. 
you know what alabaster is? Um, I'm an artist, so in, in introductory to sculpture at WKU, when you're going to start sculpture, one of the first things I would do is give you a big chunk of alabaster. It's, it's, it's a rock. It's stone. But alabaster is one of the softest stones that there are, so it's very easily carved. So even you know, a dummy can do it, you know, which is why they gave me a big one. Um, and so you, you can just carve alabaster, and it's, it's really remarkable. You can carve it and make anything of it and then polish it, and it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful white marble-type stone. Uh, and so since it's easily carved and easily polished, um, it was used in the ancient world for things like this. And they always say that the, the best ointments, the best perfumes were kept in alabaster jars. It's not a big thing. It would have been a small thing hollowed out stone uh, with drops of, we're told, nard. That's the name of the resin, the name of the oil. It's, it's called nard. Um, the thing about that little detail is that nard wasn't local. It, it came from, especially in the ancient world, it, it comes from India. So you just think about this, you know, woman in, you know, Bethany that's probably never left town and somehow she has in her possession this imported really expensive amazing thing this this bottle of perfume it's so expensive and so rare that uh, it's probably an heirloom in other words however a family would get something like that in their possession it would be a prized possession so chances are uh, it would be the thing that a grandmother would pass on to her daughter and then the mother would pass it on to her daughter. This has probably been in this family for generations. It's, it, it's a small bottle and the only way to open it is to snap the neck. You, you, you break the, the little stone neck and it's only one use. It's not like your mama's big gallon jug of Chanel number five or whatever where she can like, like do that for days. You know, big old thing. No, this is a tiny, a tiny bottle that you break the neck and then you use it and it's gone, one use. And so that's why it would be treasured because it is priceless. And that is why a, a person might go their whole life and never really break that neck because once you break it, once you use it, it's gone. And so you're gonna save that for the most important moment of your life. You're gonna save that for the, the most sacred opportunity. And so she walks in the room and doesn't say a word, but she snaps that little neck of that alabaster jar and she dribbles out the drops, drops, you all. It's, it's, it's not a river of perfume, it's drops, it's priceless. Those drops fall in her hand and she rubs them in her palms and she puts her hands up on the head of Jesus and anoints his head with that oil. She never says a word. She doesn't say anything, but other people, turns out, have something to say about it. Now, you'll notice that the conversation immediately turns to her, and it uh, seems like n nobody much likes what she just did. Everybody at the table, it's fair to say, is religious. Everybody at the table, most of them are actually followers of Jesus. And so now they start discussing this whole thing they just saw, and they don't like it. They don't like it. These are mostly practical men, and what they have just seen is terribly impractical. 
Those guys just, you know, without even blinking an eye, they can look at that bottle and they, they already have a pretty good estimate of what it's worth. Amazing. They don't seem to have a lick of sense about what Jesus is worth, but they can look at that bottle of perfume and they know the price. It's a year's wages. It's worth a year's wages. And again, these are religious people. And I sort of guarantee you that if you and I around the table, we'd have jumped in this conversation because it's a holiday time. People are thinking about the poor. And all of a sudden, this woman comes in with this perfume that's priceless. A year's wages. It's unthinkable. And she just wastes it. She snaps it open, pours it out. It's gone. And these men lose their minds. If you didn't want it, why didn't you sell it? It's priceless. You could have sold that. You could have had a year's wages. Can you imagine how much good... We could do with a year's wages. Can you imagine how many poor people could be fed? But instead, you just wasted that. You put it on your hands, put it in Jesus' hair, and it's gone. What a magnificent waste. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine all these men talking at the same time, all of these men condemning, criticizing, tearing this woman to pieces, and Jesus speaks up and says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why would you criticize, criticize her for doing something so good to me? Verse seven, you will always have the poor among you. You can help them whenever you want to, but you won't always have me. All right, I don't know how you read that verse, but you shall not leave this house today and somehow think to yourself that you heard me say or that you read in the Bible that we don't have to help the poor. That is not what Jesus is saying. It's fully, fully uh, our responsibility to help the poor in our path. We should care about the poor. We should care about the way that we steward our resources. We should not waste things on ourselves when they could go help people that are doing without. That is absolutely true. So Jesus's contrast here is not about helping the poor or not helping the poor. It's not that. It, it, it has to do with his words, the phrases, always and not always. What Jesus says is, you can always help the poor, and I would add, you should always help the poor. But that's what Jesus, that's his point. You've got a chance to help the poor today, you'll have a chance to help the poor tomorrow. This is something you should always be doing, and the opportunity to do such a common thing will always be there. That's always gonna be an ordinary thing, and you can do it on any ordinary day. The poor will always be with you, but I'm not gonna be with you much longer. It's just always and, and not always, and you won't always have me. You understand, you can do ordinary things every ordinary day, and you do. That's your whole life. You do ordinary things all the time. But if you pay attention and if you have a heart that loves, there will be moments when you have this magnificent opportunity to do something extraordinary out of love for Jesus and you must never let a moment like that pass you by. There will be critics. I mean, there's always going to be the common sense crowd. Somebody came that. That's not practical. That's not a very good use of funds. I mean, you've always got those people. Can't listen to them. Not in a moment like this. 
It's a woman named B. Salazar, and she lived outside of Dallas in a little town called Carrollton, Texas. Um, she dropped out of school early. I think she only finished sixth grade. She got married, pregnant, had five kids quick. Um, despite the fact that her life was always kind of a wreck, B really loved Jesus. She really, really loved Jesus and grew to love him more every day. Husband left her. She was a single mom with five kids. Um, she took a job working in a local factory as a computer chip kind of factory, I believe. She didn't make a whole lot of money, but she made ends meet and she took care of her children and they grew up and she got older. And um, at one point, uh, B had an accident. She fractured her pelvis, had multiple hip and back surgeries and ended up on disability. She couldn't go back to work, which was devastating for her um, for a lot of reasons, but most of which now she was in utter poverty. She could not, could not pay bills. Um, B ended up in government housing. Her kids were now grown and gone. Uh, she still loved Jesus, but she sat in her bedroom every day with all the windows closed and uh, curtains drawn. She sat in the dark and she just begged Jesus to let her die. She loved Jesus. She didn't want to live. That was her life. So one day, uh, B did what was really rare for her, and that was just get the energy to step outside, but she needed to take her own trash out. So she got a big bag of her trash, and she was walking down this skinny little corridor through the apartment complex um, to the dumpster where they throw their trash. And before she threw her trash in, she heard something rustling in the dumpster, and she looked in, and there was a five-year-old barefoot boy, little boy, scrounging for food in the dumpster in her apartment complex. He didn't speak any English. He was uh, eating old food, um, if it was food. Um, B said that she saw him putting in his mouth, it, it was probably a, an old piece of a, a hamburger bun, some sort of bun, bread, but it was covered with dirt and uh, mold. And uh, it, before she thought about it, she grabbed it and took it out of his hand. He was about to eat it. He cried, began to cry. Uh, so she picked him up in her arms. So no idea who this boy belongs to, but she picked him up in her arms and she took him to her apartment and she made him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. She couldn't talk to him. He couldn't talk to her, but he ate that sandwich. He ate it in a hurry. And uh, then he left. He went out the door. I mean, minutes later, it was just minutes later, there was a knock at her door. And B opened her door. There are six kids on her porch. Six kids on her porch. And one of them says, uh, is it true that you're giving away food? She had the rest of a loaf of bread, so she brought all those kids in and she made them each a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. She did that, they all left. Uh, the next day, there were more kids. And do I need to tell you the next day, more kids. The number grew every single day. B, B didn't really know what had happened. But she just told Jesus, she said, Jesus, if you keep bringing kids to my door, I'll keep loving them. That was her promise to Jesus. You just keep bringing kids to my door, I'll keep loving them. And he did. And she did. She started lying to her kids because she knew what her kids would say about her letting all the kids in the neighborhood, just, all the kids in the government housing project just come inside her house. And so that's what she was doing. She lied to her kids. She was trying to buy like enough bread and peanut butter and jelly without letting people notice her. 
But this was now her purpose, man. She told Jesus, you keep bringing kids to my door. I'll, I'll, I'll keep loving them. Eventually, people started realizing and, and seeing what she was doing because she couldn't hide it. Like every kid in the apartment complex now came to her house. One day, the landlord knocked on the door and B knew, oh my goodness, this is the end. The landlord knocked on the door and she whispered a prayer to Jesus and then she opened the door and she explained to the landlord why she had an apartment full of kids and at the end of that conversation, the landlord gave her an empty apartment next door so she could expand. And so she expanded. <laughs> Kids started staying until like nine o'clock at night. They would eat their sandwich and then they would ask B if she would help them with homework. I have to remind you, B dropped out of school at sixth grade. She couldn't do a lot of the lessons and, and, and most of these kids didn't speak English. So she decided to try to teach them English. So she got all of the little kids books that she read to her babies years ago and she would just read these kids, these simple books in English to help them learn English. And, and they would stay and she would feed them and it grew and it grew. There were more kids, more kids every single day. Eventually, Everybody knew what she was doing. And so uh, local churches started donating bread and gigantic barrels of peanut butter and, and jelly. And uh, honor students from local schools would volunteer to come and help the kids with homework. And um, the last I read, over 200 kids in like four different apartment complexes now all because B. Salazar loved Jesus enough to make a peanut, one peanut butter and jelly sandwich for one, one little boy. And everybody in the world would have told her, you can't do that. Nobody, you can't, that, that's not, you, know, you don't have enough to feed yourself. You, you don't have an education yourself. Those kids could take advantage of you. I'm just saying that sometimes you just have to do what you know you have to do because of love for Jesus and, and you can't listen to all the people who tell you it's, it's, it's not practical. There will always be the common sense crowd that will stand back and tell you that what you're doing doesn't make any sense, but you can't let them stop you. You can't let other people determine what you will and won't do for Jesus. You can't. There will always be a lukewarm crowd that will stand back and they'll try everything to quench the fire of devotion in your heart, and you can't let your heart grow as cold as their heart. You can't let other people determine what you're going to do and not do for Jesus. I told Jesus I would stand there forever. And as soon as there was one person that I thought might look at me and think I was foolish, I immediately changed what I was doing. You understand? There are everyday opportunities to do everyday things, but then sometimes there's just a moment that comes like a gift, and, and you have this opportunity to do something extraordinary out of the love for Jesus. Jesus says, she has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. Okay, that's what Jesus said that she did, and we know that's what she did. I guess my question is, did, did she know that's what she was doing? Did, did she have to know that's what... I, I don't think she had to know that's what she was doing. 
It's still a beautiful thing. And if all she did was give her most priceless possession to the Jesus that she loved more than life, that's enough. If she just does it out of love and has no idea what it means to Jesus, I mean, it's what it means to her. It's just love. And there are things that words can't say. And she tried to find a way to say what her heart needed to say. And and I don't know if she knew what she was doing. Jesus said, she's anointing me for burial ahead of time. She may not have known that. I think she knew that. I think she knew it. It's not that much of a stretch to imagine she knew that. Read the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says it over and over and over. The Son of Man will be betrayed, handed over to sinners. He will be crucified. Buried. He will rise again in three days. He says it over and over. And the first time he says it, Peter says, Jesus, you got to quit saying that. You're bringing everybody down. And Jesus said, you get behind me, Satan. He's been saying it. He's been saying it. He sits right here at the supper table and says, you're not always going to have me. I mean, he's been saying it. Do you understand how these disciples could walk with Jesus somehow hear every word that comes out of his mouth, but never listen to anything he says. He's been saying this. Nobody seems to hear him. Nobody seems to understand. I'm not sure that anybody even cares where he's come from and where he's going and what his purpose is. He's been saying the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. He's been saying, I'll lay down my life as a ransom for the many. He's been saying this. Nobody's hearing him. I'm just thinking maybe somebody heard him. What I think is loving Jesus and listening to Jesus go hand in hand. I think she listened. I think she knew. So she walks into the room, uninvited, unintroduced. We may never know her name. She snaps the neck of that little alabaster bottle and she shakes those drops of priceless resin out of that jar and she rubs it in her hand and puts it on the head of Jesus and anoints his body for burial ahead of time. And Jesus says, From now on, when the gospel is preached, I remind you, nobody's preached the gospel one time yet. But Jesus says, when you start sharing the good news around the world to the nations, when you start talking about me, I want you to also make sure you tell people about her. Every time you remember me, you remember her. Why is she so important? She's just a reminder to you. You gotta love Jesus. Do you? Do you know him? Do you love him? When's the last time you did something just out of love for him, without thought of what others would say, or whether or not it was practical or whether it was extravagant? When's the last time you just loved Jesus that much? Because I think this is what the story reminds us. You have every day to do everyday things, but 
There are moments when you might have an opportunity to do something extraordinary for Jesus. Don't let that moment pass you by. Jesus says in the future, when you're sharing the good news about what I've done, um, talk about what she did. Remember her. Pray with me.